Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton, a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. And I'm Ada Yee, also a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. Today our guest is Dr. Lauren Frank, professor of physiology at UCSF. Today we'll talk about the hippocampus and memories, delayed gratification, and physics versus neuroscience. All this and more coming up. with Professor Lauren Frank, Professor of Physiology at UCSF. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Frank. My pleasure. All right, so usually we like to start a little bit about your background. So we're wondering, where did you grow up, and also how did you get interested in neuroscience? Sure, so I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I suppose my neuroscience interest really can only be explained by saying that from about age 5 to age 17, I was convinced that I wanted to be a physicist. At age five, I thought I wanted to be an astrophysicist, presumably because I knew about stars and thought it sounded cool. And then I got really interested in physics and related things through high school. But what I was primarily interested in, or the thing that I thought that was coolest, was quantum mechanics. And at that time, something that I think was a relatively unsolved issue is just why do things look different when you look at them compared to when they don't, when you don't? Sadly, since then, they've sort of worked it out, and they've gotten rid of the need for a conscious observer in their mathematical formulations, which makes me a little sad. But, but that idea that somehow by interacting with the universe, you changed it struck me as amazing and something that I would like to study. However, as I did more physics in late high school and early college, I realized that that, for the most part, wasn't what physicists actually did. Oh, what, what do they do? Well, it depends. Some of them, some of the theorists probably work on things like that. Most of physics, as I saw it at that time, was either huge consortiums of people working on particle accelerators, trying to you know, identify fundamental particles, or smaller labs working on things like laser cooling of atoms or other things, very cool techniques, but not things that seemed as sort of deeply philosophically interesting to me. The idea you mentioned uh-huh. sounds really abstract. I almost don't understand uh, quite what it meant. So looking at something and that it, it, yeah. So this basic idea, like if you've heard of Schrodinger's cat, this idea that you stick a cat in a box with a radioactive element that will gives a, has a 50% chance of decay, and that mathematically you describe that as though the kit, cat exists in a superposition of states, half dead and half alive, until you actually look. Now, presumably the cat can look at itself in some way, but it's the same idea that you know a particle is a particle when you look at it, and it's a wave when you don't. So things seem to be very different when you actually observe them and they interact with a detector as opposed to when you're not directly observing them. And so there's all these really wacky paradoxes and things that come out of that that I just thought were kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. And you were drawn to that and you didn't feel like you would get to do that on a day-to-day basis as a physicist. Uh, Right. I think that was part of it. Also recognizing that I was not a genius or I am not a genius. That was a big part of it as well, is that I'm reasonably good at what I do now, but I recognized that I was not going to be the next Einstein or Feynman or anyone like that, that I didn't have that special mathematical something that would turn me into that kind of person. And so I would probably be part of a large team somewhere, and that wasn't really that appealing to me. glad you chose neuroscience in the end. (laughs) Uh, How how did you get... Yeah, so so did you get started in neuroscience while you were still in college? Uh, I did. I mean, I've now admitted this in a lot of places, but I still feel slightly chagrined to say that I actually went from a physics major to a psychology major. 
Um, so my undergraduate degree is in psychology because I was at a small liberal arts school and they didn't actually have neuroscience at that time. And honestly, I didn't like biology that much at that time. So I did a lot of cognitive psychology, but I also did a lot of computer programming and mathematical stuff. And I ended up working summers, working on various computer models of neurons and things like that. And then I got lucky, basically, as I applied to a bunch of places to work after my junior year of college, junior, yeah, junior year of college. And one of them was then Bruce McNaughton and Carol Barnes's lab at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And they, Bruce and a postdoc of his, Matt Wilson, who later became my thesis advisor, had developed a new technique for doing large scale recording from lots of neurons in the rat brain. And no one had been able to do that before. And fortunately, Bruce was willing to hire me. I actually worked on a computational model of part of the hippocampus, which was what I was supposed to do. But in my sort of side time, I, uh, I sort of helped with some of the data collection and learned about it. And that was it. That was what I wanted to study. That was what the technique I wanted to use. And that's sort of where it all came together. Was picking psychology kind of random? Did you realize you'd have a chance to do all these computational models or, or did you? It was that I realized that, you know, again, like my interest in quantum mechanics was the interaction with the observer. And so how do you study the observer? Well, you study the behavior, the actions, the, the sort of um, computations that an observer would go on in an observer's head. And so I was in cognitive psychology, but that became unbelievably frustrating for exactly the opposite reason of physics, that it was all about these high abstracted concepts, but none of them were sufficiently nailed down to actually be testable in what I consider to be a satisfying way. And then so basically, I think neuroscience was this nice mean between the extremes. As you mentioned, you um, eventually worked uh, with Matt Wilson for your graduate work and really got rolling, never leaving the side so he, of the hippocampus. He was, quite, um, he was quite young when you met him, so he was just starting his lab, I guess, when you when you joined his lab? Yeah, I, I have a very strong memory. I, I'd actually thought I was going to go to Arizona for graduate school, and I'd applied, and I accepted there in February of that the year before I went, uh, and I felt nice and smug that I knew what I was going to be doing. <laughs> and You would Matt, have been close to home, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Matt then sent me an email, I think in March, saying, oh, Lauren, I changed my mind. I'm either going to MIT or the University of Pittsburgh. Do you want to come with um and so i freaked out for a while finally said yes turned down arizona on april 15th and eventually ended up applying to mit in june and fortunately they let me in oh wow Oh. Wow. Yeah. It sounds was, like a whirlwind month really for you. Cool. That it is. was cool. It was stressful. I can tell you. <laughs> I would say when I called MIT, I did not get a lot of positive thoughts about whether I'd get in or not. And so I had no idea <laughs> what was going to happen. <laughs> well, good for you for pushing. And, yeah. You know, it worked out. Yeah, it did. <laughs> okay. Let's jump in a little bit to your graduate career. As you mentioned, you were doing large-scale recordings, uh, rat behaving rats, looking at the function of the hippocampus and the entorhinal cortex and encoding memories. So at that time, how much was known about the function of these structures? And in particular, what was known about place cells? Yeah. So at this time, we had a good phenomenological grasp of what was going on, but not much else. Just to review for anyone who doesn't know, place cells are these neurons. You can record from them in the rat hippocampus or mouse or even human. And they seem to be active when the animal or person is in a particular place. And the cool thing about that is here we are deep inside the brain, a long way from the sensory periphery and the motor output, and yet here's a pattern of brain activity that kind of makes sense. At the same time, we also knew the hippocampus was critical for memory, and so somehow these place cells should have had something to do with an animal's ability to learn things or navigate through space, 
But exactly how any of that worked, no one really had a clue. And, and just uh, define it for those that don't know. So place cells are cells that fire in a, in a specific lo locus in space. Is that a locus in space, yeah. Usually when the animal's wandering around, they move through it. In a 2000 neuron paper, you recorded from single neurons in hippocampal CA1 and entorhinal cortex in awake rats while they were running a, one of two very similar mazes. And the, you found that entorhinal cortex neurons in deeper layers seem to fire when the rat is at the same location, regardless of the exact path or sequence that the specific location was a part of, but that CA1 cells had a very different firing pattern. Can you describe this finding of this, what you term the path equivalence of entorhinal cortex cells in more detail and tell us you know, how, what this tell, tells us about different functions of the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex and how they respond to location? Sure. So the basic idea and what had been well established in the hippocampus is that if you put an animal in two different places, you get two very different maps. That is, individual neurons may be active in one environment and not active in the other, or if they're active in both, they may be active in very different places. And as a result, you can use sort of the pattern of activity across a bunch of these hippocampal place cells to know exactly where you are. So that's kind of a useful feature for something that might want to create a different map or a different memory for different places. But at the same time, what you also want to be able to do is know, what do I do in a given place? And if you're in a place that's similar to another place you've been, you'd like to be able to connect those things up, right? Say, oh, this is what I did in this other place. Maybe I should do the same thing because this looks like kind of the same thing. You'd like to be able to generalize from past experience to figure out what to do. And so there was this idea that maybe the hippocampus was important for creating unique memories and that one thing the cortex was better at was generalizing across experiences to, to extract regularities. And so the data I collected are at least consistent with that idea that the deep entorhinal cortical cells, which receive outputs from the hippocampus as well as from other places, look to be generalizing. So they would be active on two trajectories that were kind of the same, two, two paths through space that kind of had the same structure, but they were in different places or maybe even three. And so that maybe this would be a straightforward way to start thinking about how you go from a map of a unique space to a map that you could then associate, say, with a behavior. Oh, this is what I do at this place, and I do the same thing at all these different places. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So it's kind of a, I, I guess to, to put it in colloquial terms, it's like a, this rings a bell kind of uh, uh, yeah, exactly. sensation. And so as an entorhinal cortex, it's getting output from all these unique outputs from the hippocampus, I'm assuming novel uh, places. And is it just kind of comparing? Is it that it would be comparing uh, this unique place to a set of possible places that could exist? or? Right. Um, I wish we knew. So since then, there's only been really two other studies total, literally, that targeted the deep layers of the entorhinal cortex, maybe three. Because it's unbelievably hard to record from, which is part of the reason my graduate career was so miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and so we actually don't really know much about what it's doing or how, or you know, the question you asked, how do you go from a representation of specific places to something that generalizes across them? And we really have no idea how that works. That's actually something we're still looking at in my lab now. My naive knowledge of the hippocampal circuitry is that these and from reading a little bit of your papers, that the entorhinal cortex, the deeper layers are the first output from the hippocampus, and then it goes to cortex. So uh, I find it interesting that there's this generalization happening so early in the output. Would you expect that you get you know, even more path equivalents as you go into higher levels of cortex that might hold these? Yeah. 
And in fact, we do see that. So we're doing simultaneous recordings in the hippocampus in an area of prefrontal cortex right now. And what we see is many of the prefrontal cells that respond the same way on all trajectories. So where the entorhinal ones seem to pick out a subset of trajectories, the prefrontal ones look identical across all of them. And again, you know, I think it's this, you might want, as you're sort of suggesting, levels of generalization where you get it from more specific generalization to more general, say, task-related generalization as you go further through the system. You know, that said, that's still a story we're telling, right? We don't know if that's what actually those firing patterns mean. I want to actually ask a little bit about work you did later on, also in the interrenal cortex. So first, just to, to uh, get people orientated. So you were doing a postdoc um, in a close collaborator of Matt Wilson's, uh, Emery Brown. Is that right? Well, sort of. I, 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 the reason I say sort of is that the reason he was a close collaborator of Matt Wilson's is because I went out and found him and started collaborating with him. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good to have emissaries. So, you okay. know, it's like, yeah. yeah, so I was I was looking really hard as a graduate student for people to help us with hard data analysis problems. And after striking out multiple times at MIT, I finally went over to the Harvard Stats Department and set up a time for us to present to them. And, and I met Emery there, and he, I then asked him if I could do an independent study with him on statistical methods. And that was sort of, that was the beginning of five years of working together, which I were just see. amazing. And so he was coming from a pure statistics background, or was he also in neuroscience? Or um, Basically pure statistics. He's a fun combination of an MD anesthesiologist and a PhD statistician. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. That's there awesome. Are, I think there are like five of them. <laughs> <laughs> And so he had actually been working doing sort of measurements of uh, vital signs and things in NASA projects, but he had only just then started getting into neuroscience. So basically, I taught him neuroscience for five years, and he taught me statistics for five years, which was just great. And that, yeah, and that I, sh I, sh I would assume comes in really handy when you're dealing with these large data sets from these. Yeah. Extraordinarily. Yeah, no, that was a, that was an unbelievably valuable experience for me. I'm very, very grateful to him for all the time he spent. And as you said, you two uh, collaborated uh, working, again, still in the hippocampus. Uh, this seems to be your kind of driving question. just wanted to quickly ask, a lot of people shift a lot in their career, but you've been very focused on the hippocampus. And is there just a particular fascination with the hippocampus or reason for you to stick with it? Yeah. I, so one, one sort of slightly glib answer to that is it's as close as consciousness as I can get to and still look myself in the face in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the way I think of it is that memories, like these explicit memories of the events of our life, are just unbelievably important to who we are. We use them to guide our decisions. They're a big part of us. And that's something that I think is actually tractable to understand. And so that's the thing that why I've been sort of focused on the hippocampus. I will say, now that I feel like we've actually figured something out in the hippocampus, we're actually spreading out all over the rest of the brain to try and understand how these areas interact. But I kind of felt like we had to know, we had to have something to hang on to first before we could do that. So the driving motivation is understanding the circuit basis of memory, if I understand you correctly. Yeah, of memory, of decisions. You know, you can be fuzzy about it and say, right, well, I guess let's start with memory and decisions. But again, for me, that's a big part also of identity, right? So it's really how do we use past experience to guide our actions and how does that make us who, are, who we are and how we see the world? Only I do it in rats because you can't ask these questions at the level I'm interested in, in people. <laughs> yeah. 
So how does a rat see the world? <laughs> uh, I think both both of those areas just I, I think are fascinating. And when I tell people that I'm a neuroscience graduate student, many of the questions are in areas such as those. And I feel like yeah, yeah. Th- so these these studies I think are really um, yeah. philosophically important in addition to being scientifically and, and good for cocktail party conversation. <laughs> yeah, 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 excellent. And so just getting back to some of the very specific work you did. So in 2003, you had a J Neuro paper looking at receptive field plasticity in CA1 and also deep layers of interrhinal cortex. And so I guess it's kind of interesting. So you were just talking about how interrhinal cortex has these maps that perhaps can be used for the generalization. And are those maps there to begin with? Are they, are they, are you born with certain maps and how can they be plastic? So maybe could you tell us a little bit what you found about these, these cell types? So the basic idea was we, you know, if you're studying a memory structure like the hippocampus, you'd like to know how does it change with experience because that's really what it's supposed to do is lay down memories of new experience. And so I'll just say the initial motivation for this was to develop new statistical techniques to actually be able to answer that question because it turns out it's actually really hard to figure out what a neuron is doing if it's changing over time, particularly if it's changing quickly. And so what what I did with Emory was we spent time building a sort of a new framework to do that, and then we applied it to the data that I'd collected as a graduate student to try and understand what was going on. And so basically what we found was that there's sort of ongoing plasticity in the hippocampus. Even in fairly well-learned environments, things are still changing. The cells are actually on a day in a day, they become more excitable, more active, and so on and so forth. And in enterrhinal, we actually saw a broad diversity of patterns. Some of the cells did that, and some did sort of much less of that. And it turned out that the cells in enterrhinal cortex that seemed to follow the hippocampus were the ones that seemed to be most spatially specific. So they were the ones that looked like they might be getting the most input from the hippocampus. So I think the, the main thought there is that you might be able to you know, all of us are now getting really interested in this idea of different cell types. And there's this huge diversity of neurons in the brain, and they're all packed together, but maybe different ones do different things. And so this is a way of saying, you know, maybe by looking carefully at the physiology, that is how these cells are active, we can actually start to discern different functional subtypes in terms of what they do in these complicated structures. Gotcha. And so what these um, enterrhinal cells that don't seem to um, track hippocampus so much what are they doing and where do they get inputs from? Haven't a clue <laughs> is the short answer. So, you know, there are other inputs to enterrhinal cortex, including from prefrontal cortical regions, um, which are generally much less place-specific in their firing. And so it may be that those other enterrhinal cells are more getting input from more prefrontal areas. It may be that they're active but they're not signaling anything of importance. That actually seems to happen all over the cortex is only you know, 30 to 50% of the cells you record in any given region seem to care about the task you're having the animal do. And the other cells seem to just sputter along. Um, and that's been a big mystery about why that is, but it you know, suggests there's a lot of resources there, but any given task only uses a subset of them. Actually, just to back up a little bit on the particulars of what receptive uh, field plasticity means in, in, both, in the context of place fields, is that uh, on subsequent trials, how how plastic they are with respect to the place fields? Or how consistent? Yeah, or how consistent they are, how much they change from one moment to the next. So, you know, if you think of the neuron as representing a, a place, does it represent the place the same way? Does it move around in terms of that place? Is it, is it uh, active at the same rate? All of those sorts of things. 
and, and I will say really that, you know, I sort of see that paper as a demonstration of the method and then kind of an interesting result. But for me, the point of that was to be able to do what I did next was to study how these cells form or appear in a new place and to see that, in fact, they change unbelievably rapidly when an animal goes into a new place. And the whole circuit seems to rearrange itself within a couple of minutes to create a new pattern of activity for that place. One particular interesting paper that I actually remember reading in a neural systems and behavior class that I took, you know, I think you were in there close too, Probably. Right? Um, was it, so in 2009, you had a paper that made important discoveries about hippocampal replay during sharp wave ripples and that phenomenon's relationship to memory storage information. So previously, it was thought that hippocampal replay during sharp wave ripples occurred only during sleep. And that when these events occurred, while the animal was awake, they were initiated as sort of a direct response to the current sensory environment. But your lab used a well-designed maze paradigm to show that these replay events can occur far from the original environment being remembered even during the waking state. So at, at first, actually, can you describe what was what sharpwave ripples are and what was known about them and then go into the paper a little bit? Sure. Absolutely. A sort of simplified version of this is when an animal is running around, you get place cells. When they stop... In some cases, that local place-specific activity goes away, and we start seeing bursts of activity where a whole bunch of hippocampal place cells fire together. And mostly this has been looked at during sleep, and this is called a sharp wave ripple event because Yuri Buzaki, who's the guy who discovered it, noticed that if you look at one place in the hippocampus, you get this sharp deflection in voltage, which he called the sharp wave. And if you look in the CA1 cell layer, you get this fast wiggle, which he called the ripple. So it is a sharp wave ripple because it looks like a sharp wave in one place and a ripple in another place. And so basically what this is, is this seems to be the, the high frequency part of this event, at least, seems to be something that's generated in the hippocampus. And then we know from other studies during sleep that this burst of activity in the hippocampus can spread out to a lot of downstream regions. And we're still looking into that now. And the question is, well, what is this for? Well, why would you want place cells when the animal's running around and the animal stops and then you have these big bursts of activity? What's the point? And the idea in the field had been that, well, one thing you want to do is in the hippocampus is you want to learn things quickly, and then you basically want to teach the rest of the brain what you've learned. And so the idea was that during these events, it would replay sequences of place cells corresponding to things the animal had done. So if they'd been in place A, B, C, it would replay A, B, C. It would do it on a really fast time scale, which is compatible with inducing plasticity, and it would do it over and over again in such a way that it could actually drive plasticity in downstream circuits. I always think of like uh, dominoes, like, you know, one domino knocks mm -hmm. over the rest and then you quickly like put them back up again, that does it again. Exactly, exactly. And so that was the idea for, and that was sort of, I think, a well, well established theory and this idea of consolidation. One of the things that that didn't address is, okay, that's great. How do you retrieve the damn thing? That is, you know, how do you remember something actually? And what does memory look like? And we really, from my perspective, didn't have much of a clue about what memory could look like. But what, so what we found was that these replay events actually go on all the time in the awake state as well. So the animal could pause and then you would see this beautiful sequential replay of something that looked like an experience. And it could be something the animal had just done 15 seconds ago, or it could be something that the animal had done 30 minutes ago. And so this is, you know, sort of remarkable to us that this could happen. But it, the idea was, well, you know, what would a memory look like? Well, you know, if I say, hey, what did you have for breakfast and where were you? You can remember that. You can think back to that. And, you know, the, the psychological term as people use is mental time travel that you can recapitulate in your head a sequence of people, places, things that happened. 
but also that you do so really quickly. So you don't spend 15 minutes remembering what you did for breakfast. You spend, you know, a tenth of a second. And yeah. compressed amount of time. Exactly. It's very compressed. Yeah. And that's exactly what these replay events look like, is compressed retrievals of awake experience. Mm-hmm. And do they require reminders? So that's a great question. We don't know. They seem to mostly, they often start from places, like if they're, if they're, remi- if they're replay of the local environment, they tend to start from where the animal is and go away from the animal. And we actually think that this might be really crucial for planning and decision making. But they can also be from remote environments. And so presumably something in the brain has to tell the hippocampus what it should be remembering. And that's something we're actively trying to figure out now is how does that work? How does the rest of the brain say bias hippocampal replay so that the hippocampus can eventually replay the right thing? To get to Ada's question that it doesn't just have to be directly linked to at least the location that the animal was in, right? But It, It definitely doesn't. You're absolutely right. It can replay a completely different place. But one of the things that we found is while the animal was awake, it tended to start with neurons that happened to be active. So if you imagine that the rest of the brain could tweak a neuron that was part of a memory of another place a little bit to turn it on while the animal was awake, it could then spit out a beautiful memory, roughly speaking, of that other place. And so the idea was that local inputs might be able to bias the network to retrieve particular memories. And sometimes those would be local memories and sometimes those would be remote. So memories. if you, in environment one, you had a sequence that involves only like 20% of the neurons you record from then memories of that environment one tend to be triggered by one of that 20%. Is that exactly. correct? Gotcha. Yeah. I guess that's kind of consistent with my experience of memory. I'm just sitting in lab meeting and something very incidental. Yeah. <laughs> you, get, you get on a train, a memory train in a way, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it self-reinforces and, you know, reactivates itself. Mm-hmm. Another kind of intuition that we have about memory is that you don't remember every single thing, and some things have obviously have more salience than others. And one thing, for example, might be that if an uh, experience is particularly rewarding, strong in that sense, we tend to remember it better. And I think probably experimentally, a lot of us know about you know, the the quintessential Pavlovian conditioning where, you know, you condition uh, a dog to associate a treat with a certain stimulus like a bell. And so around the same time, you've actually shown and, and followed up on this work that cells that are activated during a rewarding stimulus are actually eight times more likely to be reactivated later on. So I was Wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this work. So was it known, just to start with, that the hippocampus was required for these kinds of conditioning paradigms? Right. So generally, the hippocampus isn't required. That's one of the surprising things is Ah. you can do Pavlovian conditioning with no hippocampus whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, a lot of the things that we need to learn are complex sequences of actions and their outcomes. So if I do this and then this and then this other thing, will that lead to reward? I mean, this is the graduate school is the ultimate example of that because the the delayed gratification is slightly insane, right? It can take years and years. (laughs) Exactly. Right. But if, if there is gratification at the end, presumably your brain would like to associate that with the years of work that went up to it, right? Sure. Right. Sure. And so I think the idea, the way we think of this is that this may be sort of, for the longer timescale, more complex experiences that we have, where we need to understand the structure of the world and what things lead to particular outcomes, that's when you sort of want to engage a hippocampal mechanism. And so then when something good happens, well, remember what that thing was and what happened before it. And maybe then you can start to link things over actually quite long periods to their outcomes. So that's sort of our thought of why you, why you might want to see this massive increase in reactivation following reward. The only, the only other thing I can add to that is 
it's a lot easier to learn when things go well than when they don't because there are so many more ways to screw something up than there are to do it right most of the time. A single experience, I guess, can have a very negative impact, but usually to get a complete rewarding experience that has to be a collection is, is what you Yeah, do. exactly, right. And so you can learn, you clearly, we clearly do learn from negative things, but if you're trying to figure out, say, what to do next and you're exploring your options, most of the time you'll be wrong, right? And so if you focus on learning from those negatives, you can kind of imagine eh, that might not work so well. But if you really said, oh, this worked, I should do that again, that's a fairly good way to relatively rapidly optimize your behavior so that you're successful. It manifests itself in animals. So I might think of these complex uh, rewarding experiences as something very specific to humans. But in a rat, are, is it mostly only these complex tasks that show this kind of uh, behavior that you saw? Uh, yeah, so we don't know. So we have only done more complex tasks in my lab because that's what I'm more interested in. My guess is reward does this generally, but we don't know. Just getting into where the hippocampus might fit in into the reward circuitry. Yeah. So, you know, we know that like the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens are really, and the striatum are really uh, important for reward. How do you think that maybe the, the signature left by an event in the hippocampus is then later acted upon? As you say, you know, in the graduate school example is a great one. I mean, this is... Years yeah. later, right? Yeah, yeah. So. Now, I'm wondering, like, if some of that canonical reward circuitry that so many people interested in reward, um, is it is it linked to the hippocampus, or do you think they're totally independent mechanisms? Uh, oh, so they're definitely tightly linked in a couple of ways. So one way is with that hippocampal outputs through an area called the cebiculum, which is actually the main target of campal out area CA1, where most of us record. It's about a three or four synapses from there to dopaminergic neurons in the VTA. And so cebiculum output can turn on dopamine. So that's one way. And so it there's something. So one of the other things that we found is that when an animal goes into a new place, the total output of the hippocampus, or at least area CA1, doubles. It just spikes twice as much in a new place. And so one thought is that this might serve as a novelty signal and that maybe one way that that might influence the rest of the brain is by activating dopaminergic neurons in the VTA. That's totally speculative at this point, but it's kind of fun speculation. The other way in which this is true is that the more ventral parts of the hippocampus, that is, and this gets slightly complicated, but there's a part of the hippocampus called the ventral hippocampus. It turns out to be much more tightly connected with areas like the ventral striatum, the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex. And in fact, it projects directly to the ventral striatum, you know, for reward. And so the thought is there that one of the things you need to be able to do is associate places and trajectories or things you've done with their outcome. And that connection looks like it would be perfect potentially for doing so. So are wow. there, is, it, is hippocampus in, in any way downstream of some of these reward pathways, or it seems mostly upstream? You know, that's the wonderful thing about the hippocampus. It is upstream and downstream both from everything. Um, so, Center of the world. Oh, of course. Well, you're, you're talking to a hippocampal person. So. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, it's, it's a couple of – so to get from the ventral striatum to the hippocampus is a few synapses, but there are direct prefrontal inputs to the hippocampus. There are amygdala inputs to the hippocampus. So it's clearly getting modulated and both modulation and information from lots of these more emotional or outcome-related areas. Uh, you talking about the ventral hippocampus is really cool, I think, because I uh, think the emotional life of the brain is a particularly interesting thing, <laughs> yet much less emotionally, yet much less experimentally tractable in a experimental animal. So the fact that, you know, you can do these experiments on place and get a memory and then <laughs> potentially extrapolate. 
or at least speculate is, is really cool. Yeah, well, you know, we're trying. The problem is, you know, nature ended up putting the ventral hippocampus in an irritating place to record from. It's really hard to record from because it's deep. I, what What's up with that, right? It's very frustrating. So, in fact, many fewer studies have targeted it. And yet, based on its anatomical position, it looks like it's really critical for all these things. Uh, we're working on it now. Finally, we'd like to ask if you can give us a preview for your upcoming talk at Stanford, maybe what our appetite will be. Yeah, so basically my talk is about a lot of the things that we've talked about is, you know, if you're looking for a trace of a memory in the brain, what do you look for? What would it be? And so what I'm arguing and what I think is perhaps even right, which is nice, is that these sharp wave ripple events may be a critical aspect of memory. And not only an aspect of memory, but an aspect of the ability to use the past to extrapolate into the future, to imagine possible futures, and then to potentially evaluate those futures and actually make decisions based on them. So that's Very what I'm cool. going to be talking about. Sounds good. All right. Well, with that, I think we'll wrap up with a couple of what we like to call our rapid fire questions. So uh, we'll ask a brief question. And if you can just answer with whatever comes to mind, the first question that we like to ask, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, graduate student Lauren, what advice might you give yourself? Uh, two things. It will get better. <laughs> and the second thing is learn more quickly how to be systematic. Mm-hmm. Very good advice. Good advice. Second question is, if you had to think back to the biggest aha moment or high of your scientific career, what do you think it would be? So I think that would be when we got the results from a study where we interrupted sharp wave ripples and saw a very specific memory deficit. Because this is the first time we've been able to take a specific pattern of brain activity and relate it to the ability to use experiences to guide behavior. One of the first papers in your own lab, right? Uh, No, that was, well, it was 2012, but we didn't have a huge number before then. Yeah, this was the one where we actually demonstrated it was important, not the one where we first saw the phenomenon. I see. Gotcha. All right. And then the last question, I guess kind of in the spirit of Valentine's Day, if, if you always have dinner on Valentine's Day, if you could have a dinner date with any famous scientist, past or present, who would it be? It would probably be Richard Feynman, actually. Oh, he would be a fun conversation. Exactly, yeah. right? <laughs> what would you ask him? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think I'd have a plan, but, you know, um, someone, and I don't know if this is heretical or not, but it, someone told me that at one point in his lectures on physics, he wrote about, well, if, he could, if it was possible, he would study memory, but since that clearly wasn't possible, he studied physics. So I think I'd start with that. <laughs> I, don't, oh, I don't know that's if that's great. true, but I love it in either case. <laughs> You're yeah. the, the reverse of Richard Feynman. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Dr. Frank. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Nicholas Schiff, professor of neurology and neuroscience at Weill Cornell Medical College. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, David Lipton, Andrew Gundren, Yet Nguyen, Eddie Alberin, and myself, Ada Yee. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all the past episodes of Neurotalk, as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk, I'm Ada Yee. And I'm David Lipton. 